Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. I'm excited about my guest today. I've waited a long time to have this guest on the podcast. He would have been one of my first choices as a guest, but Charlie's been hard to pin down. But here we go today. I don't know about the rest of you, but one of the advantages of living in a community for a long period of time is watching young people grow up and develop into young adults who are often just uh, very talented and very expert in their field and really replace the previous generation as the leaders in that field. And a local birding community is the same way. When I first moved to Pierce County, I was just beginning as a birder. I got involved with the local Audubon Society and met some of the top local birders and saw a couple of very young birders in the county along around that time. One of those was my guest today, Charlie Wright. Charlie is an extremely talented birder, as well as a very thoughtful and insightful person, just a downright really nice guy. You'll hear Charlie tell a story today of finding a great bird when he was just a kid on a Westport Seabirds pelagic trip. I've heard the same story from Bruce Labar's perspective. Bruce is a good birding friend. He's been a guest on the podcast and was one of the people uh, who got a chance to bird a lot with Charlie when Charlie was young. But anyway, Bruce's story is more of a perspective of, oh my gosh, this kid was just incredible how he picked this bird off the water so far away on one of his first pelagic trips. Charlie's is more, wow, I really like pelagic birding. This was fun. Uh, and so it's just different to hear separate perspectives about the, about the same story. It seems like when I wonder if a bird has been seen in Pierce County is the first time it's ever been seen in the county. Often the answer is, no, Charlie was saw one a long, long time ago. Enough of an introduction. Help me welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast number 116, Charlie Wright. Charlie, welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast. It's been a long time waiting to get the Pierce County's top birder on the show. I'm excited about it. Thanks for coming. <laughs> At least according to eBird, I suppose. Yeah. yeah hey, well, nice, th- nice to be here, Ed. I think t- according to a lot of people, you know, Will's probably pushing you. But other than that, you guys are the, the cream of the crop here in Pierce County. <laughs> yeah, it's good to be back, too. I've- it is. You, you uh, obviously grew up in this area. It was been fun to be an older older birder in the area as uh, a young, uh, young up-and-coming birder. Charlie Wright grows up. You... I, did you grow up in Sumner or Ording or somewhere in the valley? Up on the hill in Bonnie Lake. Oh, okay. Okay. I remember it was over in that direction and always hearing about all these cool birds. You know, it wasn't as easy to hear about them in those days without eBird, but that this little kid was finding all these good birds. Tell me about growing up in uh, Pierce County and the, and the birding community in those days. Yeah. Um, starting out. It was a pretty solitary venture for a little while. I um, I was six years old when I first. So people have a spark bird story, and I have one uh, western tanager in my yard in Bonnie Lake. Um, somehow, when I was six years old, it caught my attention, and I saw this bright yellow bird with an orange head on a bird bath, and then there was this green bird right next to it, and I thought. I guess I had um, knew enough about birds that there must be different kinds of birds. Um, I got my mom to get me a, a field guide and was able to figure out that they were the same kind of bird and male and female. Mm-hmm. So that was a big revelation um, early on. 
you know, started with the, the, I still remember the red Audubon field guide photos. Mm -hmm. And as I started, you know, looking at other birds around, that was a very frustrating guide to use because some of the photos were from the East coast. Yeah, it was terrible. It seems like every parent or uncle or aunt who wants to give the, a kid uh, a bird guide gets, oh, must be the Audubon one, must be the good one. It is so hard to use. Yeah, but that was that was the start and it was uh, it was all it took. So after that, I think somehow I also got this um, software like Peterson Multimedia Series software and saw that you could make a, a bird list and add new birds. And that was all very exciting. So, um, yeah, starting from six, I was, I was doing that on my own. And then, um, actually the rest of my birding connections, it's sort of, uh, it was a product of the early internet. Mm-hmm. So um, I would go online and it was the time of AOL Mm-hmm. And there were these big public chat rooms that turned out in those days. And there were birders all over the country who were just chatting birds on these chat rooms. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, there I am very yeah, six, seven years old talking with adults about birds and <laughs> far flung places. <laughs> yeah, very cool. But yeah, one of those one of those birders I met um, was Ryan Shaw. And he was my first actual birder who Mm -hmm. I met in person, which Mm -hmm. uh, my parents were obviously very supportive and maybe could have seemed a little bit risky, you know, in the media, it was all about don't, don't meet people online or sure. But, you know, they took that risk and, and it worked out, you know, Ryan Shaw's become one of my uh, best friends and longest, longest uh, contacts. Ryan's Uh, a little older than you, maybe. Yeah, which was critical. He'd just gotten his uh, his oh, driver's license. Okay, and I was, you know, eight years old, <laughs> real <laughs> far from uh, from driving. Yeah. So, but next thing, he was driving me all over Washington, um, and we were, you know, I was learning a ton from him really fast. So it was exciting. Very cool. Very. Uh, there was quite a, you know fabulous group of young birders i mean the two ryans and you and annie maybe a little younger but annie came along there sometime and i don't remember who the others were but it was a really uh fabulous group of young birders in in washington at that point yeah um that all kind of came in later like uh, so eventually i i did um i found the local audubon chapter rainier Mm -hmm. audubon and had maybe more of a, a normal uh, initiation into the birding community. I met mm-hmm. um, met some really great people through that. Uh, Jim Flynn and Carol Schultz and mm-hmm. um, Theus Bach. Oh uh, yeah, I love Theus. These were these were my mentors for sure that I met through uh, through Rainier Audubon, and you know Carol probably drove me fifty thousand miles. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. It's great to have uh, uh, birding friends with a car when you're a kid, I bet. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, early on, there there wasn't a young birding, I wouldn't say a, a group in Western Washington that okay. I was aware of. It was just Ryan and I and 
maybe Jason Starfire was the only other birder under under 30 that I knew okay. until I was until I was a teenager anyway, 13 or, or okay. 14. So very cool. Yeah. So it sounds like a fabulous, I mean, you know, if Ryan Shaw was your uh, friend slash mentor, you had a, a wealth of talent to go birding with. That's for sure. He's spectacular. Big time. Yeah. He's really sharp and uh, introduced me to a lot of things. I bet. And Charlie, you were homeschooled, I think, weren't you? So that gave you uh, more flexibility in terms of uh, opportunity to get out with people. Yeah. Um, after the uh, fourth grade, I was homeschooled. So okay. um, I kind of went back and forth some, but um, it did give me the opportunity to really immerse myself in birds and, uh, you know, run off with Carol to far corners of Washington. And I, I wouldn't really trade that experience. It was, it was fantastic. Uh, yeah. It sounds like, uh, it sounds like it was. I remember always being uh, you know, hard at work, you know, family doctor, go to work every day and think, that Charlie, how's he out so much? And it says, oh, I get it. Okay. <laughs> very nice. <laughs> yeah. Very supportive parents. Yeah. And they were, my parents weren't really, uh, they never were into birds necessarily. I got my dad into it later on. So he, he was into it enough to drive me to to a rare bird to see it and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah. Very cool. So you grew up uh, with birding friends uh, and uh, were a birder from a very young age, and then you've evolved into you know, really birding as a career. Yeah, I would say, uh, I'm not sure exactly. Obviously you can tell us a lot more about that, but I know you've done some pretty crazy, <laughs> I would say crazy stuff, been on remote Alaskan islands and been on NOAA ships and all sorts. Tell me some of the, how did you find that uh, venue of, uh, of an occupation and, and tell me about some of your experiences? Yeah, sure. Well, you use the remote, the word remote, which makes me think Alaska. Um, I had some really special experiences up there and did field work. I've done field work for 10 years in Alaska in the summers, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes up to three or four months, sometimes a little bit shorter. Um, this year was the first year I've not gone up there. So I had a full summer here, which was a change, but getting to Alaska was a, a big goal of mine and in, in other field work that I've done and the opportunity came up and that first year in Alaska was some of the remote, the most remote working that I've done in a place called Icy Bay in Southeast Alaska. And I was on a small team of, of other um, field biologists who were studying kitlids as murrelets and uh, also predators of kitlids as murrelets. So uh, sort of combine a lot of new experiences, Alaskan summers, not a lot of darkness, <laughs> and uh, catching these birds out at night when in the few hours of darkness, and then catching their predators during the day. And uh, I don't think I slept that summer, <laughs> hardly at all. Um, yeah. But I was young and energetic and could do those sorts of things. Uh, so how do you catch a kitlis's murrelet? You must go out at sea and catch them with a net or something or? Uh, yeah, a uh, salmon net, just a dip net. 
and um, fortunate they have a tendency to freeze up when you shine a bright light on them. So oh, okay. you would be out there in this small remote bay, you know, we're a hundred miles from any, any town mm-hmm. um, in Alaska and go out at night in a Zodiac and shine a spotlight, spot one on the water and keep the, keep the light on it. And one person is on the, on the engine, um, you rush up to it. And then I would usually be manning the net at the, at the front of the Zodiac and mm-hmm. just have to dip at the right time. And it doesn't always work, but <laughs> yeah. now I don't, I don't know too much about very little about Kitlitz's murelet. I've seen one, I think. Uh, but do they nest in old growth like uh, marble murelets? So where do they nest? No, it's it's very specialized as well, but not any trees. Um, okay, more like a traditional house than a marble murelet. Yeah, except at high elevation, um, at least out of Icy Bay, they're up under the glaciers in these talus slopes. Wow. Um, Super, super remote. And there's no predators up there. Uh, So we would take helicopters, actually. And sometimes these helicopters, even from where the helicopter dropped us, you have to hike five or six miles through rough terrain just to get to these nests. Oh, my goodness. So so like marble mulets, they have a unique way of finding a place to nest that's relatively predator-free. I mean, you know, yeah. 80 feet up in an old-growth tree on a side branch is, you know, not too much dissimilar from a talus slope on a glacier. I mean, in a, in a kind of weird sense. Yeah. Yeah. They're special birds. Their merlets are, are really cool. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So cool. So you, you do that and you're looking at diet or what do you, what are you doing with, what are you studying on these birds? Um, that year we were focusing on what was eating them. So we were putting little radio transmitters on them. Oh, okay. Out on, on the bay. And then Mm -hmm. sometimes we would do overflights, um, to find their nest, Mm -hmm. but we'd also put satellite transmitters on them. Okay. Get exactly where they're hanging out. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned by day, we were also catching the falcons, uh, the eagles Mm -hmm. and putting um, satellite transmitters or satellite backpacks on them as well. Okay. So we're looking at where their ranges were overlapping and Mm -hmm. um, the extent to which they were predating Achilles' murrelets. So is it more like jeers and peregrines? Or is it more eagles? What's eating them? Um, the peregrines are, so we went to quite a few peregrine nests and definitely mm-hmm. found Achilles' murrelets, including some of our transmitters under their nests. <laughs> okay. Peregrines definitely do get them. Bald eagles, our theory was that they often would steal them once, once a peregrine had, uh, had oh, already okay. done the captured them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, so what's it like living, living in these places? It, it just me must be hard. I would think. Yeah. It presents a challenge. Uh, it was, it was exhilarating for me, but, um, really life-changing experience, uh, later that same 
that same year, that first year I was in Alaska, um, my friend was starting a project out on Middleton Island. And that's a tiny island. It's about a mile and a half long. Mm -hmm. And typically there's a rotation, two people that work for the FAA who are on the island. Okay. And then other than that, it's just whatever biologist is out there. And sometimes that was just uh, my friend and, and I. So you have to really be okay with, uh, with quiet solitude and uh, <laughs> lots of time for just focusing on the birds. I bet. I bet. So you were uh, misnetting migrants there. Is that the purpose of being on the island? Yeah, exactly. That was a banding project focusing on passerine migration uh, across the Gulf of Alaska in the fall. There's okay. a lot of birds that actually do a trans-Gulf migration, which uh, seems a little bit like it would be risky. The Gulf of Alaska is a very stormy place, as we experienced every, every <laughs> few days. Middleton Island is where these huge low pressure systems really develop right over us. So oh my goodness. We had all kinds of weather out there. You know, I bet. And you're just in a tent probably. Um, actually it's a, uh, it's an interesting place. There's a, an old air force station from world war two, I believe that. Okay. Um, a lot of the buildings have been abandoned and uh, fallen into disarray, but there's one building that they've kind of preserved for, um, for people to stay in. So, okay. So you had cover. Yeah. A little field camp situation and didn't have to stay in a tent. Although sometimes we did. So you did that job for several years, didn't you? Yeah. I kept going out there. That project lasted for four years and it was an exciting place to be. I, I love birding on islands. Mm-hmm because you, you really know what's going on. You can take the pulse of migration, um, see the comings and goings of different species really well, especially on a small island. And just around the clock, we were birding, mist netting, looking for rare birds, doing sea watches. And very cool. It's one of those places you, you don't know what to look at at any one time. <laughs> yeah. My Alaska experience is very limited, but I was in Nome on the, on the summer solstice one year. And uh, it is, it's, you know, it's tempting to never go to bed. It's, 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 you just have to force yourself to, you know, give your body a break now and then. Yeah. Nome you mentioned is that's, that's my favorite place possibly in Alaska. Um, not the town, but outside of the town and the, <laughs> The town is nice, but yeah. the, the mountains out of Nome, you can just hike. Seems unlimited. There's nothing to nothing in the way. So yeah, I'm just flying into Alaska for anyone who hasn't done it. You, if you're say going from Anchorage to Nome, uh, you just fly over. It seems like nine million Mount Rainiers. <laughs> it just seems like mountain after mountain. As far as you can see, there are snow-covered mountains in every direction that all look gigantic. It's just mind-blowing yeah but Nome is um not glaciated and the Seward Peninsula is just like these rolling 
really green hills and uh, some rocky spots at the top where there's red knots. We were studying red knots out there. Okay. Um, so we had a, a field camp way up high in these alpine areas um, among the red knots. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, Nome is a special place. I hope to get back there sometime while I'm still able. We'll see how that works out. Charlie, what are some of your other uh, field opportunities you've had that really stand out as you know, really great opportunities for you? Yeah, a lot. Um, a lot of work that I've done has been at sea, actually, um, in Alaska and off of the West Coast, surveying for seabirds. And um, the general deal there is that uh, these ships are doing other sorts of science. So mm-hmm. birds are sort of a sort of an add-on that these projects like to like to say that they can do, but um, we're pretty we're pretty flexible and can just jump on these ships of opportunity. So any research vessel going out, um, there'll be a bird observer and that person can record data anytime the boat is moving. So usually the boat is going to stations or maybe there's a mooring where they have these scientific instruments. Okay. Uh, They're studying ocean currents and maybe some biology at the bottom of the ocean, but all the birding, all the bird surveying goes on between stations. Okay. And that doesn't always mean that uh, you're seeing a lot of birds. So again, I said, I have a high tolerance for quiet solitude (laughs) and uh, I've on these uh, ships, uh, there was one 24 hour period with a lot of fog where I saw one bird, I saw one Pomerine Jaeger <laughs> in 24 hours of surveying. And that can happen when you're 150 miles out in the Chukchi Sea. Uh, but there's always, you know, every trip has some exciting times as well. I, my only experience is on real birding, uh, pelagic sort of things. I'd never been on a research vessel. And it seems like even on a pelagic trip, there are quiet times and busier times. You, you look for places where the birds are going to congregate. So if you're not going specifically to those places you expect birds to congregate, I can imagine that there are slow times. Yeah, you kind of have to have a, a Zen approach to it because you have no control over where you're going. Unlike these, uh, the pelagic trips, which I've, I did my first Westport pelagic. Uh, I think I'm, I was probably 11 years old. So mm-hmm. Ryan Shaw drove me out and, uh, and we got on the Monte Carlo and I probably met Bruce Labar maybe for the first time that day. And that okay. stands out. Um, I, you know, I've always felt at home on, on boats, but um, Westport Seabirds is just a great organization and they are great group of people. That first pelagic trip really solidified for me that seabirds are a, a special passion. Um, and I remember, uh, noticing this, noticing a bird way out on the horizon that was riding higher than all the other birds on the water. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
pointing it out to Bruce. I remember this pretty vividly. And, you know, Bruce took note and was like, oh, that does look kind of weird. And, and uh, signaled over to, to Phil, we should really pursue this bird, chase it down. And it turned out to be a kitty wake sitting on the water. We got close to it. Mm-hmm. And Bruce is starting to talk about how it's unusual to see a kitty wake in August. And this is a cool observation. And then the bird lifts out of the water and has these bright coral red legs. Um, And the boat just went nuts, like (laughs) red legged kitty wake. Yeah. Um, Very cool. So that was, that made a big impression on 11 year old me. And, uh, I'd never even seen a black-legged kittiwake before. So. One of the few birders in Washington has a red-legged kittiwake before a black-legged kittiwake on your life list, I'm sure. Yeah, the time at sea is always has always been enjoyable. Yeah, uh, I, I have a funny story about uh, pelagic birding. I, I went on a trip out of San Diego with, uh, with my brother-in-law. And he's not a birder, but he's, you know, likes to go out to sea. So I took him out on one, I think it was the San Diego bird festival or something. And, and uh, he told me after a few hours, says, I've got this pelagic thing all down. You just sit down, close your eyes and wait till you hear the cameras whir, And then you get up to see what's going on. <laughs> so he, he thought he knew all about pelagic birding. That was a whole trick. Wait till you hear the cameras going. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to waste your time looking. <laughs> So each to their own for that. Uh, so Charlie, you spent a lot of time doing field research, uh, and uh, you've you've also uh, taught. I know you've done some teaching. Uh, you taught our ABC club a, a gull class. That was really a good experience. Uh, so how how you know gulls are you know one of those things birds either love or hate. Uh, I think, and uh, you know, a lot a lot of birders you know, look for an adult and hope they can figure it out. Others uh, are more into the nuances of age and uh and plumage and all of that but gulls are are a challenge uh how how do you approach gulls when you when you just look at gulls you see gulls going by i mean you know to a lot of us it's like oh god it's not an adult what is it (laughs) yeah uh yeah gulls really uh take a different approach from a lot of birds because here in the northwest we have so many hybrids your average flock is composed mostly of impure birds. <laughs> um, so you really have to understand that you're going by probabilities and none of this is entirely certain. You're never going to be 100% certain on things that are mixed. Um, we can't read DNA with our eyes. So <laughs> sure. Um, I think that people, people get stressed out that they're doing it wrong or um, they're going to be wrong, but we're, we're always wrong with goals. <laughs> <laughs> I think the more, the more, you know, about goals, the more you realize we're, we're never going to be right. Most yeah. of the time. 
probably relaxing and enjoying and doing the best you can is part of the trick, I guess. I remember when I took uh, Ken's, Ken Brown's birding class and he talked about gull and he talked about molt. He said, we always know what, what stage of molt uh, a gull is in is transition. <laughs> they're in yeah, transition yeah. between this malt and that. They're, they're, they, they start their basic malt before their alternate malt is finished and they start their alternate malt before the basic malt is finished. And so they're always a mess. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Charlie, you spent a lot of time banding birds. How did you learn to band birds? Did you learn that locally here? Oh yeah, that's a good question. So I mentioned, I mentioned I didn't know a lot of young birders, but then when I did get to be high school age, uh, there was this group in Seattle Audubon, um, their young birder high school program. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate to be around when Don Norman and Dan Froelich were leading some bird banding camps. Okay. for young people, for high school age people. And there was a lot of interest in that time. And, and uh, we would spend five days up in the Cascades banding birds. So that's where I picked up the skills and then kept them fresh by helping out at Morse Preserve and um, the map station there, mm-hmm. other places around the sound. And then working for U.S. Fish and Wildlife um, up in Alaska is where I've done most of the banding. Sure. Cool. You get, it's, it just takes a lot of practice. Middleton, on a good migration day, we would have a couple hundred warblers and sparrows. So, so a lot of uh, rep, you know, a lot of reps, so to speak, as an athlete would say, a lot of reps. So cool. So bird banding has been a, a, a nice uh job skill for you to have. Uh, recently, and, and we're going to have a separate episode on coast, but recently you've been, had a uh, kind of an ongoing job for a number of years as the, as the uh, I think, what do they call it? Record uh, confirmer, basically the person who helps uh, the volunteers know what they're seeing when they find a bird remains on the coast. Just really briefly talk about what coast is and what your work there is. Yeah. Um... I'm the data verifier for COAST, and COAST is a citizen science program, a little bit like eBird, but it's Mm -hmm. for dead birds on the beach. Okay. And it's a little bit more structured than eBird. And yeah, we'll talk about it a little bit more, but um, people basically take photos of dead birds, identify them, and I check those identifications just to make sure they're all correct before... Yeah, scientists. Yeah, that uh, it is amazing. I, I I'm excited to have an episode coming up to talk about that because I've I've stumbled across coast observers, you know, and they'll, they'll come across just a little, a few little feathers or a piece of a wing or a or a head or just some really old decrepit remains of a bird that's washed up on shore, and you guys, you know, quantify and identify those. Just kind of an amazing <laughs> project, I have to say. Yeah, we'll have um, Jackie Lindsay is the is the science coordinator, um, mm-hmm. and she'll be uh, she'll be happy to talk about it too. Yeah, that'll be fun. 
It'll be fun. I want to talk a little bit about the Dune, uh, Dune Peninsula Park here. This is, uh, you know, we live, Charlie and I live in Pierce County, Washington. And uh, what has it been about two years now since they opened uh, a new county uh, metro park here, right, uh, right next to uh, Point Defiance. It's uh, between the Yacht Club and Commencement Bay, sort of a little finger of land that goes out right next to a, a gigantic development of condominiums and a shopping center and movie theater, and a, a very upscale urban development. But a little park that just juts out into Commencement Bay from there seems to just be a, a, a real magnet for birders, for sure, <laughs> for birds. Uh, tell me, why do you think uh, Dune is such a spectacular birding place? And, uh, and you know, what do you like about it? Yeah. It's been a game changer for, for Pierce County. We used to kind of bird the same place, but it didn't have the same access at all. I would say it's a, it's a good birding place because it's a peninsula and peninsulas are always better birding than non-peninsulas, except maybe islands might be even better than peninsulas. So, <laughs> um, but that's a general rule in, in birding is go to the peninsulas. But Dune is a really weird spot because if you've been there, you, you'll probably notice at this point anyway, they have some plantings, but there's no trees <laughs> is what really separates it from Point Defiance Park, which, which is a little he heavily, out. heavily, heavily uh, forested. Yeah, which is great um, because uh, it's all the better for scoping things three miles away. <laughs> mm -hmm. So sometimes there's birds on the water a long ways off, but you can still scope them from, from Dune. And really just that, that vantage and the, the view of the skyline over Point Defiance um, in the spring for, for migration, that's, uh, that's what it's all about there. Like if you, if you go to Dune just with binoculars, uh, you're, you're just not going to see <laughs> a tenth of what's there. You're going to miss a lot. A lot. Of, it's a lot of distant birding and and uh, and flyover birding, but that's kind of um, one of my favorite niches in birding is is just digging in and uh, and watching bird migration, seeing what the birds are doing, and and seeing what you can see from one spot. It is it is crazy. I I, I have to say when I see you know, young, talented birders like you or Will at a place like Dune in the spring, especially spring, seems more spring than fall, but especially in the spring, uh, that identifying birds at impossible distances overhead and, uh, is, is it's quite a, a skill. What, what are you looking for? Are you mostly looking for field marks or flight patterns or call notes or what, what helps you identify these little specks in the sky? I think what I would say... I think the Sibley guide is really underrated for, uh, for these purposes. Uh, and maybe like everybody has the Sibley guide, but I think a lot of people gloss over the flight pictures uh, and descriptions. How, yeah. How revolutionary that was when that came out, that every single species is illustrated in flight, every bird and Sibley's illustrations are, are not the most detailed you know, as far as fine details, it's not all there, especially in those flight illustrations. Uh, some of them are almost comically simplistic, but they, they still do something for me. And I think Sibley's really a master of that impressionistic style that 
emphasizes what really stands out to the birder through binoculars. Um, so Sibley, Sibley Guide came out when I was 11 or 12 years old and I just devoured it like <laughs> front to front to back memorized that book. And so I think that's kind of my baseline when it comes to birds in flight, you know, the, the little illustrations, but also his notes from the field, Sibley's notes, it's all there um, on how these birds fly, their wing beats. So I think that's a really good starting point. Um, that's great. I, I, you know, I, my, my thought was that I think he intentionally made those, those plates. He only put on them what you can really see. I mean, he didn't put on little tiny field marks that you get on a bird in your hand or a bird at 15 feet in your binoculars. He put on what you can see it. 200 meters up in the air, you know, the, the shape and the shades that change and things like that. So I, I think that is a, you know, it is a game changing set of book. Yeah. That's, um, that's what he's really the master of. I think. Yeah. I have a lot of respect for, for what he did with, with that book. Yeah. Charlie, I'm going to kind of switch gears a little bit. You've, you've done some uh, birding in South America. I saw that you've uh, been to Mexico, uh, Mexico, it's not South America, in Mexico and Latin America, at least. Uh, what, how have you had the opportunity to get to those places? Have you been through work or just birding trips or what's your experience uh, south of our border? Yeah. Um, that's all just been birding trips with friends. Um, a couple of them were as a young birder, you know, I had this, had connections with other young birders across the country mm -hmm. and we were interested in birding the tropics. So um, we would take these road trips. We took this long road trip through Mexico um, for over a month. Wow. Uh, and that was just totally life-changing. So I, I keep going back to Mexico and hope to, hope to keep going back to Mexico my whole life. It's very, very special country. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah. I've, I've just been to Peru one time, but probably saw almost as many species that one month in Peru as I have all these trips to Mexico. So Peru is, is another level up. Uh, somehow Mexico is still special though. It, you know, for me, Mexico, it just has a culture and a feel. I just, you know, a, a lot of my friends, they'll have to go to Hawaii and stuff. I said, boy, you know, Hawaii is cool, but Mexico is just so much more, more interesting and fun. And yeah, I'll take it any day. Yeah. And 300 endemic species. That's not too bad either. <laughs> no, that doesn't hurt. That doesn't hurt a bit. <laughs> Charlie, what do you, what do you see going forward in terms of birding for you? What are your, you know, what, what's on your, boy, I really like to do this list or I'm hoping to do that. I know the world situation right now has kind of put a glitch in everybody's thing, but hopefully that will resolve. Yeah. Well, right now I'm really enjoying adding to the cumulative Dune Peninsula list, the hotspot list, you know, in two short years, we've gotten that park list up to 200 species. So I'm, I'm excited to see, um, and that's only 
you know, a kilometer from my house here. So it doesn't take a lot of effort. The elephant in the room is, is Nia Bay. It's another amazing experience has been tapping into some unseen potential out there for, mm-hmm. for rare birds in Nia Bay. And I think as birders, we're all still kind of in a grieving process of, uh, of not being able to go out there. Uh, they, they closed it for very good reasons, but um, we do look forward to being able to bird out in Nia Bay again eventually. All of us mere mortal birders uh, grieve, uh, uh, not just going to Nia Bay, but the records committee going to Nia Bay <laughs> uh, <laughs> and finding us some good birds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You get, were you with the, the records committee uh, folks who went around uh, kind of encircled uh, the, the reservation and uh, uh, tried to uh, pick away at the fringes? Yeah, we tried to get as close to Nia Bay as we could, um, but close is not in the distance same. is not really even close <laughs> as far as uh, the birding goes. For sure, for sure. Uh, so you're really enjoying uh, uh, local birding, uh, which is uh, local and you know regional birding. That's really cool, uh, Charlie. Uh, what would you like uh, to to close with? Do you have anything you wanted to you know? Uh, get the word out about or causes or anything like that you'd like to just uh, make sure people hear about? Well, everybody knows about eBird, but um, I'm, I'm also the eBird reviewer, volunteer reviewer. So mm-hmm. I think people, people, at least I have a hard time imagining what eBird is going to look like in, in 10 years. Cause when you think back, 10 years we weren't able to put our photos on there and so now all of our photos are being used to train these computers for ai and that's been an amazing development so yeah supporting the ebird um, platform is pretty cool yeah chella I, I completely skipped i wanted to talk to you about your early ebird experiences i mean you grew up i mean you grow up with ebird but you were you've been with ebird since kind of it began, really. Uh, tell me about uh, what was your involvement and how is, uh, how is the, your, you know, what's eBird been for you? How, how have you worked with it? That sort of thing. Yeah, I think I started using it 2005 or so um, when it was a very different program. It was not, there wasn't any um, bells or whistles and there was one filter one checklist for the whole state of Washington. And it wasn't even very good for the whole state of Washington. So Mm -hmm. I was the one of the first reviewers for Washington and made some of those first filters, breaking it up by region, Mm -hmm. smaller and smaller. And I really enjoy that process because one of the things that really interests me is bird distribution, where you can expect to find a species certain times of the year. And so it was actually a a really good tool for refining my own knowledge of that kind of thing and putting it into the data set. So it's been just amazing to see it grow. You know, I remember when there were between five and 10 checklists coming in from the whole state of Washington every day. Uh, 
So now it's like, yeah, just to think that there's just thousands of them. It's yeah. amazing. It, it is a fabulous database and it's just so many ways to use eBird. I, I can't even, can't even think about, uh, and that's just as a bird, forget about it, as a researcher, as a you know scientist, it's, it's a, it is arguably the premier citizen science uh, uh, project going. Yeah. On that, on that front, um, I have a, a tip. Um, oh, thanks. I really like using clickers, um, especially on a bird walk. So oh yes. Little, mm-hmm. Like tabulators, right. tallywhackers, mm-hmm. um, especially on a bird walk. I can't keep track of how many, um, how many chestnut back chickadees I've, I've heard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that really was solidified this this last summer, um, sometimes I go on bike rides in, in Point Defiance Park mm-hmm. and uh, started doing it during the pandemic last year with, with these clickers. And you'd choose like one species to keep track of um, on one hand, maybe another species in the other hand, if you're, mm-hmm. if you're really good. <laughs> if you don't need your brakes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's like a five mile loop through the park. And I think if I didn't have clickers, I'd probably have put down, you know, 20 Pacific slope flycatchers. With the clickers, I think 85 was the most. <laughs> um, so it's just really good habitat out there. And um, our brains aren't very good at at noting every single bird. Yeah, I, I, I I'm always amazed when, Sometimes, not not now, but before when you could get in the park before nine o'clock on the five mile drive, going out to do owling at like you know just at the crack of dawn maybe or something. How many varied thrushes there are in the spring? There's oh my god! I mean, it's like just you know you just say oh maybe there were a hundred, but I bet there were you know who knows how many there were really were. You just kind of so something like a clicker would really come in handy. I don't even know if you'd have to have a 10 counter on the clicker for those guys, I think. Yeah. I've seen some amazing varied thrush flocks in there last year with the snow. I think um, there were at least four or 500 um, in, in a very small area. So. I can believe that. Yeah. yeah. See, shocking numbers. It, it, you know, just the road just littered with them as you drive through just before daylight. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Charlie, thanks so much for being my guest. Uh, but I've, I've been hoping to get you on the podcast for a long time and uh, now I have. So thanks so much. Sure. Glad to do it, Ed. Yeah. Good birding, Charlie. Take care. Well, thanks for listening. That wraps up the Bird Banner podcast number 116 with Charlie Wright. I hope you enjoyed this episode and you'll get to hear from Charlie again before long when I have Jackie Lindsay along with Charlie on to talk about the Coast program. As always, you can find more related information on birdbanner.com on the blog post associated with this episode. I also have an upcoming episode with Jim Danzenbaker, where we're going to talk, among other things, about Christmas bird counts in Washington. Before that, though, you'll get to hear from Joe Moreland, an accomplished birder and a very entertaining guest who's going to be on episode 117 up next. If you have birders or others you'd like to hear from, reach out to me on the contact page of the birdbanner.com website or really any other way you want to get a hold of me. I'm at birdbanner on both Facebook and Twitter, and you can direct message me from there too. Again, thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding. Good day.